You're listening to Teaching STEM for Real, a podcast dedicated to for real conversations on educational equity in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education. I'm your host, Dr. Lena Bakshi McLean, STEM education disruptor, justice advocate, certified ruffler of feathers, and a wannabe comedian. I'm also the founder of the nonprofit STEM for Real. If you want to explore what anti-racist and socially just instruction looks like in our classrooms, schools, and beyond, for real, you're in the right place. Let's dive right in. Dr. Lindsay Lyons is an educational justice coach who helps schools and districts co-create feminist, anti-racist curricula that challenges, affirms, and inspires all students. Right up our alley. A former New York City public school teacher, she holds a PhD in leadership and change and is the founder of the blog and podcast, Time for Teachership. She believes the secret sauce of educational equity is student voice. Absolutely. Let's embrace this teachership. All right, we've got Dr. Lindsay with us. We are so excited to have you. Lindsay, if you could do us a favor and share your awesomeness. I mean, I know a little bit about your journey, but we would love to hear about your your journey in education and how you got to where you are. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So because it's a podcast, I'll say that I am a white cisgendered woman. I am living in Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. So on the indigenous lands of the Massachusetts, the Nipmuc and the Pawtucket, my journey to education, like my parents are both teachers. So my dad's a PE teacher. My mom is a special education fifth grade teacher. And I was like, I am never becoming a teacher ever. (laughs) Like I see all the grading and all the things and all the Uh stories. (laughs) And then I actually wanted, I wanted to become a lawyer and pursue like supporting people who had survived uh, intimate partner violence and various forms of abuse or oppression. And I realized that it, that, that's a huge lift that is really uh, difficult work. And as teaching is, it, it, it's challenging. And what I realized is my passion lies with preventing that stuff from happening in the first place. And I realized that education is the place to go to just have more justice in the world. Like these young people are going to be like our coworkers, our bosses, our presidents, like all the things. And so like, why don't we start having really genuine conversations about justice and having a more just world early on? And that would be amazing. So that's how I got into it. That is awesome. It's funny because my mom was also a teacher and I remember saying, I will never be a teacher. And here I am a few decades in, just couldn't leave the, couldn't leave the profession. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know how much you want in terms of my teaching experience or anything like that, but I can go deeper if you'd like. Yeah. So tell us uh, what, what typically did you teach? And um, Yeah. yeah, let's go into that. Okay, cool. So yeah, I started, I got, did an alternative certification program. So just kind of jumped right into it and started with special education 
in all the like forms in a high school setting for all the high school grades. And so specifically, I was working with social studies at that point, um, bounced around to a few different schools, got a really great perspective of a lot of different types of um, how schools are run and how teachers create curriculum, teach curriculum, what are the different types of pedagogies and PD supports, which was just a fascinating thing, uh, and learned from the brilliant students that I had And along the way, they helped me co-create a feminism course, which I finally got to teach as like my full-time job, which was so cool uh, to uh, emerging multilingual learners in New York City. So that was kind of like where I landed and did the last four years of my teaching career. Technically, it was an ELA course, but it was like a literacy course. But that was the content that I taught it through, which was so fun. Wow. There's so much in that because you had this intellectual freedom to create a course that you designed, that you had the autonomy to design. And that that speaks volumes, especially because of where you are now. So you actually work as a, in, in the realm of curriculum and instruction and supporting teachers with curriculum. And it's funny, I had I had did a little digging and I saw that when you do your curriculum audits, the first two things that you list are we're going to look at your community culture and we're going to look at the degree of meaningful student voice. And that's typically not found in curriculum. I mean, mostly you start with, we need the standards, we need the objective, we need the objective written on the board. Students will be able to swabot, you know? And and I see that you just dove right into two huge domains that typically curriculum people would not consider. I'd love to hear more. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I think, thank you for asking this question. First of all, I don't think anyone's asked me this question. So it's really fun to to think about why I did that. The way that I got to, I love you named the autonomy. The way I got to actually teach and co-create that feminism course was because we had so many students with IEPs who were not showing up to school and they were not succeeding academically on their state tests. So they said, you're going to take all these students and you're going to teach them something it's going to be an elective. And what ended up happening is students got to have meaningful input into co-creating that class. Like, what do you want to learn? How do you want to learn it? How do you want to demonstrate your learning? And so just by creating that community of like, we're going to all talk about this and we're going to talk about some hard stuff and we're going to talk about it openly. And we're going to talk, we're going to like dig into like our experiences, however much we want to share. And we're going to like really listen to each other and value that experience and that prior knowledge that you're bringing to the class and establishing that as the base for the class and then co-creating it together, giving students the meaningful opportunities to like have the co-creation of the course, but also to impact change and take what they learn and do something with that in their local communities. Like they actually created a take back the night event for high school. Once we all started sharing about just kind of like what we were learning about and like our understanding of like intimate partner violence and things like this, that were like really pressing issues for them and their attendance improved, their grades improved, all the things that ended up becoming like a uh, college level course which started with students who were being like really unsuccessful. And so I think that story of that emergence of the course for me is like why I realized those two pieces were foundational because without it, the course would have never come to be. I wouldn't have experienced the joy of like teaching the course and getting to hear these brilliant students just share. And they wouldn't have found that like connection to academics, but also to each other and the space that education could be. So I think that's where the grounding comes in. It's so funny how we work with students, and yet they are the last set of people that we consider uh, and give them a seat at the table 
when we're talking about curriculum and instruction and learning. We bring in consultants, we bring in, you know, administrators and, and so many people. And, and it's funny because when I work with my pre-service teachers, I tell them, I say, okay, you've created this lesson. Now interview a student and ask them, how did it go? What do they want to learn? How did they how did they accept the learning? Because they are our voice. Tell us more about how you you were able to co-create the systems that led you to be able to co-create this class. And, and is it possible? Can we do more of that? Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that. And I also just want to highlight what you said. Like, I love the idea of interviewing students and getting that kind of like street data as Shane Zafir and Jamila Duke can talk about, right? Like this idea of actually asking them how it went and what could be better and listening to and putting into practice that advice is huge. Um, but to, to do this, to kind of like co-create, this is like a huge question, both in like the scholarly research, like what does it mean to co-create? Like how, how do we define it? But then also in practice, like okay, that sounds lovely, but literally how do you do that when you have to have a unit plan, you have to have a lesson? Like, do we just give students an option on a choice board? And so sometimes I'll even title my workshops or PD sessions at conferences, like more than a choice board, because it's so much more than that. And honestly, I think if you have a flexibly designed unit, and I often talk about like a unit arc, having like the protocols in place, like we're going to start with a hook. I often like to hook in current events. Current events aren't something you can plan for because it's like happening that week or something, right? So just having that almost placeholder, like then we're going to explore case studies that relate to this core concept. Well, so that's something you can kind of plan ahead a little bit about. Maybe you have three or four, but if students bring in some, we go there, we, we follow that direction. We have like these stopping points that are Socratic seminars or circle discussions where we're coming back together. We're sharing personal experience and also student research experience. And then we have the civic action project at the end where it's like, okay, you learned the stuff. Maybe we have a driving question. Now, like, go do the thing that you want to do. Follow that content area of interest. That's like a kind of a subtopic of what we've been talking about. But then also figure out a way that you want to do it. So I've students create documentaries. I've had students propose changes in school policy. Um, there's like all sorts of things, you know, that you can do to make an impact in your community. And I think letting the students just have complete control over that part can be overwhelming, but can also be really freeing and creative for them. So how does it work? Would we just invite students? Would we choose a student panel? Would students apply? What, what are some of the systems that could make this happen? Yeah. So I think any teacher can do that. So, so there are more like preemptive strategies and I'm playing with those right now. We actually have in Massachusetts where um, Mass Academy students are kind of co-hosting and co-presenting with me. Um, we're doing student teacher teams who are designing civics project-based units together with students and teachers in the same room. Wow. Yeah. I'm really excited. So I will report back. That's an experimental PD. And then in terms of like, if you don't have that space or your admin doesn't have the funding to send you to something like that, I think any teacher can do it with the students that you have. So in the next unit, think about like, you know, what are those core things that you want students to learn? What's maybe a couple texts that you want to integrate or sources you want to do? Um, you know, uh, I know you talk about phenomena, like what's a phenomenon you want to explore? Like, what is that kind of core piece? And then from there, truly ask students on a week to week, day to day basis, like, what is it that you are interested in? I like starting with kind of like a hook, a current event, and then doing literally like a circle. So like, what are your questions about that? What are your connections to this, both personally to other courses? What are your interest areas? And then literally co-create like next week's lesson or the next lesson around some of these groupings, which takes some work on the fly. And also as from an admin lens, 
you know, you want to have that ability for teachers to work together, to plan during the day so they're not taking this home. Um, and I know a lot of teachers don't have access to that, but I think when we design flexibly, where we say, for example, tomorrow's going to be a case study day, we are going to look at one text or maybe two texts, or maybe students are going to be on their computers and find the text. And then we're going to share out by the end of the day, we're going to have, you know, two pieces of information that will help us answer the driving question. You have that protocol in place and you just need to find the one text or the two texts. And so that just makes it more manageable than designing the whole lesson for the next day, if that makes sense. Yes. And then I want to go back to the foundations of the feminism course, because it was built on, oh, we have a, an attendance issue. And and I, I was looking just uh, on social media, there were a lot of administrators that are struggling with attendance and they are, they're, they're going to do home visits. They're going to give more detention. They're going to do all of the things. And uh, and then you also mentioned that there was a lack of, the, the test scores weren't conveying the the achievement that administrators wanted to see. And so some people, some administrators, they say, well, let's give them more English. Let's give them more math. And that will solve the, the interventions. And yet you talk about this novel idea of talking to the students and co-creating a class. I think that that's, that's so meaningful. Can you speak more on how the students did in the class? Absolutely. So, and I'll also pull in some research so people don't think it's just this one kind of like miracle class. Like yeah. we've seen across the boards that when we have meaningful student voice in classrooms, that students' sense of agency, belonging, and competence improves. Uh, their civic engagement improves, their academic performance improves, their relationships to peers and teachers improves. Even students who aren't in the class, this is fascinating. I think this is a positive psychologist uh, that, that found this um, or coined this term cascading vitality. And this idea of like, if someone that looks like me has the same experiences as me, the same identity markers as me, like is in the class succeeding or being a leader in some way in the school, like I benefit from that because I can now see myself as also having access to that power, that success, that agency, you know, whatever it is. There's also just an improved sense of like with courses like this, like critical awareness and activism. And so like actually more able to have like an adult level critique of the world and, and to put what they're learning into action to improve their local communities. So that's all the things that I saw. I saw students who were just like, I, I, there was a student I remember who had probably come to school one day in the past 30 days of school. Um, and that was like a pattern. She would come like every 30 days or so, just I think to not maybe get a home visit or something, just like I'm here, like I'm fine. And she started coming to almost every class. It was like maybe like 75% attendance or something, but you know, a huge swing. Her sense of like agency in that class was off the charts. She started performing like slam poetry, talking about like all of these experiences that she just like didn't feel comfortable sharing with other people, you know, started like encouraging other people to come to class, like just amazing. And then academically, there were students who I swear had not seen more than three sentences of writing the entire previous year when they were in my class in like a, you know, a test prep kind of course, and were writing five page research papers, like no problem, just like incredible. Incredible, incredible, would not have believed it unless I saw it. And the, th the only difference was like, they got to choose the topic. Like they got to write about something that was important to them. And they had, of course, the time in class to work on it and the, the scaffolds and the supports of, of course. But like, that was the only thing. It was the, 
versus like the test prep, you're going to read about this thing. Now you get to talk about a social issue of your choosing, go for it. And it was miraculous. <laughs> Hi, it's Lena. And I want to tell you all about our STEM for Real network. In our network, our educators, or who we like to call netties, incorporate culturally responsive science and math teaching using lesson study. Visit us at www.stemforreal.org forward slash partnership. That's stem4real.org forward slash partnership and learn more about how your school or district can partner with us and become our newest netty for real. Wow, wow. It's great. And I and I love how you brought in the research and the receipts from the actual practice that that you got to host. That's that's awesome. I am again, I'm still looking at this awesome list that you have of looking at your curriculum audit, community culture, degree of meaningful student voice, and the presence of relevant and representative identity affirming content. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, what does this mean for the future of curriculum? I mean, shouldn't curriculum writers have this list too? That's such a great, such a great point, right? Like, so, so this is something that I, I often share and is not a popular opinion. So I will, I will share it uh, with that caveat. We love unpopular okay, opinions great. on this show. Yes. So I kind of get I, like break out in hives almost when I hear the idea of like an ed report, highly reviewed curriculum that is amazing, right? Like this, this boxed curriculum that is on the shelf. You could take it off the shelf. You kind of plug it into your classroom and go. I love the idea of like doing research and, and making sure that students are experiencing the curriculum positively, like you were talking about. But I often think that's not like what the ed report stuff is. It's what it maybe could be. But I also think there is this degree of seeing your students, connecting with your students, co-creating with your students that is just essential to the student experience. And there's also that feedback from the students who are in front of you, which changes year to year, which does, you know, it makes it challenging. But for that feminism course, for example, it started in one school, it got moved to two other schools and then went through, I mean, like hundreds of students went through that course. It changed every single year because the students changed. So the projects changed, the topics changed, the current events changed, the world changed. I mean, there was so much change that happened and that to be true to the students in the co-creation process, I as a teacher just had to respond to. And so I think that's that's really huge. The identity piece is huge for, for example, my students who are emerging multilingual learners. It was a school of everyone having recently in the last four years come into the um, United States and immigrated into the United States. So there were 50 countries and 30 languages represented in that school. Like everyone's bringing their own identity in. And so sometimes that means, you know, looking at like a, a source that might be originally in a language that's not English, right? And so like, how do we leverage like multilingualism and like all of those pieces? And again, that changes when the students in front of you change. And so it can't be the scripted thing that exists and can be put into any classroom anywhere. There's this personalization present and that's required. And I also think another piece I often don't like, so there's this uh, feminist, I think Sandra Harding in the nineties, when women were starting to enter the workforce and leadership levels, she was like, you can't just add women and stir. And so I just kept saying like, you can't add diversity and stir, <laughs> right? Like, 
you can't just add like this BIPOC author into this very like white cisgendered heteronormative ELA curriculum and say, we're good. Like we have representation of like one person of color. Like that's not, no. So instead what I think of, I think of students who have come to me in high school have had years of traditional curriculum that centers so, like one type of identity that represents like 6% of the population, right? So how do we actually make that like 1% of the curriculum for the entire year? Like we don't add in, we just completely take out all the traditional stuff and we center and create from the ground up all of the identities that historically are marginalized. Ooh, okay. Take out all the traditional stuff. Millions of dollars, millions, billions, I think, are are spent and invested on curriculum, mostly stemming from California and Texas and applied across the nation. And uh, those are fighting words. I like it. So <laughs> thinking about completely revamping and many of our teachers are hearing Things like you need to teach the curriculum. You need to teach it with fidelity. They love that word, fidelity, to the point where even our elementary teachers who who teach science, they want a scripted curriculum because because of their plates, right? It would be so difficult to to create their own curriculum for every single subject. So how do you how do you make it realistic? for for your teachers and and what's what's some of the pushback that you get oh my gosh that is such a good question so i think to me it's a mindset shift from the from the get go so i used to spend a ton of time creating honestly more time probably creating like the test preppy kind of curriculum so i was never given a curriculum so i don't, I don't have the experience of actually like having a curriculum handed to me but i had you know the, one of those like curriculum maps or overviews like here's what you need to teach in this month blah blah so i would create you know some stuff and the students would be miserable they wouldn't succeed on the test in terms of like the grade metrics and their attendance suffered and so what i realized is like if I take the same amount of energy that I'm taking to implementing a curriculum, for example, or designing a test property curriculum or whatever, and I just put it into like, I'm going to spend, I got down to 30 minutes per lesson. Um, I think I could probably get it down to like 20 minutes if I refined a little bit better. But in doing something like I have five or six protocols where, for example, Socratic seminar, all I need to prep for Socratic seminar is one question. Students know the protocol. I have a worksheet that I always give students as like an entry ticket uh, during like kind of a before, during and after. It's like a three page worksheet. Every time I use a Socratic seminar, I have the same exact worksheet. I don't need to recreate it. All I need to do is come up with a question that takes five minutes to prep. So if I do one of those every two weeks, that's a high value student centered lesson. And they're just pulling on sources that they learned throughout the week. For a text-based lesson, I might say, we're going to do a gallery walk. We all know the protocol. I might have like a, a way of doing that, some a slide deck that's for any time I do a gallery walk. And all I have to do is choose like the three sources, for example. Students use the same worksheet. So trying to like streamline and focus, I think in that sense is important. But when I think about like the cost benefit, it might be a more upfront cost at first, that process of creating curriculum for, from scratch. But I felt like I at the end of the day, my metric was how do I feel at the end of the school day? Do I feel depleted? Do I feel joyful, energized? Like wh where am I on that spectrum? And I often, when I created and co-created with the students, 
was way more joyful. I had way more leftover and like energy in the tank. When I went home, I got to actually live a full life. I got to work out more like that to me was worth it. And also like during the class, if there's high engagement and the students are like into the lesson, there's less fire to put out. You know, there's less of those like trying to monitor behavior. Like there just wasn't as much of that because students are so engaged. And so I think Those are things that often get lost in the idea of like, how much time will this take me to prep? It's like, well, how much time do I get back with full energy after the school day, during the lesson? Um, And that was a huge mindset shift for me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it sounds like that's what it takes. Like when you're working with a group of teachers, I think it would be very daunting to say, all right, we're going to create our curriculum from scratch and roll up your sleeves and let's go. And And so I'm sure you spend a lot of time going over everything you just did with having the shift mindsets and work with teachers that that can say, hey, look, we we're barely getting a living wage. And now you wanted us to do this. Like, that's not our job. Yeah, that's such a good point. So I I would say I'm I'm starting this series, which you're actually part of, which is so cool. It's going to air in the summer, creating curriculum in just one episode of the podcast. So Yeah, like that kind of stuff. I I recently did one with um, Debbie Tannenbaum, who's a tech coach. And she literally, she had a um, 10 lesson unit that she was building out. She literally built all of the lessons just in our like 40 minute podcast episode. Like, I mean, it's possible when you take the approach of like, all right, streamline protocols, bring in core content. I mean, she would build out the slide decks afterwards, but like it is possible to design in not a super long period of time. We simplify. I think so much of education, I think back to like grad school when they were like, this is what a lesson plan looks like. And I know some teachers are in some schools where there are very intense lesson plan templates. My lesson plan template is three columns. It is literally what is the content? What is the one protocol? Not like 14 protocols, but like one activity that is the central activity for the entire lesson. Give it some room to breathe. Give it some space. And then what is like the, I call it a text, but like the resource, it could be like a science experiment. It could be a video. It could be a timeline. Like what's the one text? And that's literally it. So it's content, uh, text and protocol. And then you have your lesson you might, you know, build a couple slides in or have a worksheet, but those worksheets are recurring because you're using the same protocols. It's just about finding like these little tricks to not only make your life easier and planning shorter, but students respond to that kind of repetition in a way that I did not anticipate. I thought they'd be bored. They're just really into like, I know what to do next. And, you know, I want to emphasize, yes, we're in different domains. Like you're in the humanities. I'm, I'm in STEM. Our audience is in STEM. And what I love is the marriage of our two worlds and being able to take those instructional strategies and apply them to our content as well. And and I want to talk a little bit more about the types of assignments. I'm assuming that your, your assessments aren't just your typical multiple choice, fill in the blank. You know, you're you're inspiring some some youth action here. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I try to do with departments and what I tried to do with myself when I was planning my own curriculum is like, what is that big thing? I Now I'm starting to call it more of like a publishing opportunity, but where does it, where does the learning extend beyond the classroom? How do we have an audience that's authentic, that's beyond the teacher and a purpose that's beyond the grade? 
And so again, that could look really different. I'm thinking back to like my students, I said one was a policy decision. Um, their actual project was doing a ton of community research. So they were learning literacy skills, like surveying, interviewing, writing reports, presenting, and they literally presented to the school board, like, here's how I think we should do school programming next year. These are our three proposals. Here's the data from the students. And so they made graphs and chart, like there's all sorts of skills that are embedded in that. But, but like, that's like a pretty innovative thing that they came up with. And I never would have thought like, yeah, talk about school programming. Like that's going to be fun for you. We've had students who have created like multimedia performance pieces where they've created like videos that like are the background setting to a slam poetry group performance based on like ELA texts, pulling in history content, like just the mind blowing stuff that they would come up with. We had some students create the design and actually print out t-shirts to raise awareness for one was um, LGBTQ rights of students in schools. One was maternal mortality rates and maternal treatment in, in incarcerated facilities. Just like really cool, innovative things that I never would have come up with on my own. I love that. Tell me, tell me more. So I'm assuming your assessment question isn't, all right, demonstrate your learning. There has to be a method to, to getting and eliciting these amazing responses. Yeah. So for example, those, those three um, or two of the three, the school policy one and the t-shirt one, those both came from a project that was a participatory action research unit. And so I think the question was like, how do we like leverage our community wisdom to improve our communities or something like that? Um, the question definitely needed some work, <laughs> but I was early on in my teaching <laughs> driving question language there. Uh, but basically they had to go through the steps of the process and following the steps of the process is what they were effectively assessed on. So did you actually ask questions of your community? How representative was it? How in-depth did you go? Did you follow up with like the students who had like least access to the decision-making power? Like, did we leverage those voices? Did we highlight those voices? Did we just talk to the student body president? You know, like, did we just talk to the athletes? Like, so these kinds of critical consciousness, sociopolitical consciousness skills are being built. And, and then the actual publishing opportunity is really just, can you speak to your data that you collected from your community? Can you walk the person? We did like a, a social justice expo, we called it kind of like a science fair. Um, and we had them kind of like explain their rationale for their project, talk about the project, talk about if there was measurable impact, what was that? What would they change and do different? So there's also that reflective practitioner piece. And then the people who we invited in, which were community members, admin, other staff, other students, they got to also impact the student's grade and leave uh, feedback for the presenters. So we have more of an authentic kind of grading in that sense as well. And so we're always thinking about like, I think we have three core standards. I typically do like three to seven each year. There's like these core standards that just pervade the year. And so um, one was like evidence and one was kind of like claim-based like argument and like creating all of that. And then there was one that was, I think, research and maybe taking action. Okay, maybe there's four. And then that's like what it was. So it was like, however you tap into those, however you can demonstrate those, we're good to go. And then the driving question for each unit is like framing what we're really doing in the process. What do you think the realistic expectation should be for teachers? Should they have a youth action assignment every single unit, every single lesson, every single day, you know, what, what does it look like? Okay. So that is a great question. I would challenge and invite people to accept the challenge of doing every unit 
a civic action application. So I think what that can mean in terms of a publishing opportunity varies. So one might literally just be like, okay, so you're presenting um, to you know the school board or you're presenting in a social justice expo. So you have this kind of publishing opportunity here. Maybe another time you're submitting to a competition. So like C-SPAN has a really cool documentary competition for like policy recommendations. Code Switch, uh, NPR's Code Switch has a podcast competition for students. Like there are these different venues that like exist elsewhere. Um, and, and they're very like topic agnostic. The, the like central theme is like justice or better society or like those kinds of things. When I'm planning, no matter what I'm in or when I'm coaching like a math teacher, for example, who teaches geometry, right? And it's like, how do I relate this to, to civic engagement? We might say, okay, how do we collaborate interdisciplinarily? And that doesn't mean co-plan each lesson, but just kind of like, from a big content perspective with the history teacher, for example, or the art teacher. And we may say something like, you know, a driving question could be, how do we create a fair, equitable, representative map of, of governance or something? So, so what we could do is look at gerrymandering from a social studies lens. And then we could look at like the literal maps and districts that are drawn from a geometric standpoint um, we could pull in uh, statistics and other math skills. We could look at like artistic representations of, of the map. And then we could kind of like pull together this question that in the end, students are actually creating a better society. They're saying, well, this is wrong. But if we were just studying what's wrong, like that's kind of depressing. Like we just kind of end with like, oh, and the world is terrible. But if we invite them instead to say like, well, what's a better way? What are the geometric possibilities? Like what would the data say in terms of representation if we did the geometry this way? That kind of invites it. So, so my big point, I think here to back up to your question is how do we design each unit with a big question in mind that makes it so students never have to ask, why is this relevant to my life? but it's just naturally embedded. So we design from the perspective of why is this content relevant? And that's the question that we're grappling with is like the application. And so we we create that opportunity for them and then we design from there. I love it. I love it. And and again, we always talk about this concept of relevance, making it real, STEM for real and, and all that. What is uh what what are some of the age groups and grade levels? Do you think that there is a limiting factor when it comes to age? Can we can we send preschoolers to a council meeting? What can, what does that look like? Oh my gosh, I love this question. So in the student voice research fields, where we're talking about students like co-creating their learning environments, that research in terms of published research that I've seen has gone all the way down to first grade. I imagine that it could work in kindergarten or pre-K as well, but but that kind of level, what that was is like a teacher asking the students, like, how would you learn best? What about the learning space could be uh, facilitating your learning better or something? And then the students literally would redesign the classroom, move pieces around, change up the process of how the school day flows. And that's kind of maybe the level of what that would look like. I've also heard, you know, like a, a math teacher teaching tallying in an elementary school um, by saying like, okay, we're going to pull up the map, the list of 50 U.S. senators. We're going to tally by gender, by race by, you know, what religion. And so that way we're kind of increasing our awareness of identity via political representation, but we're doing a tallying lesson, right? So there are different ways to kind of pull in these, these threads, these strands. And I, and I think obviously at the high school level, there's much more expansiveness and there's much more deep criticality. Um, I think about Desi, uh, the Department of Education in Massachusetts right now is doing an investigating history curriculum that starts in fifth grade, where they're grappling with some really intense um, history and some 
really challenging like social issues and they're doing it well at the fifth grade level. So, I mean, there, there's definitely differences, but I think it is possible at any age. And I ask this because we get this question as well. Looking at the political, the, the political um, maps and looking at the environment there, especially when we have laws that say, I don't want CRT in our schools, even though they don't even know what CRT is. And, and they're openly saying these horrible like misconceptions and spreading it into actual laws and policies. And yet, when we think about our work, about prioritizing justice-centered curriculum, when people hear the word social justice, they're like, oh, I don't like to, you know, be political. I just like to focus on my content. And I see that cringe because I think I cringe too. What What is your your response to that? And how do you navigate that with your educators? Yeah, this is a great question. So I think for me, I... And I have had, we were talking about Dr. Sheldon Akins earlier before we hit record. And Dr. Sheldon Akins has been on my podcast. We've done a podcast swap. And we have talked about this in both of those, I think, episodes where this idea of, I think, I don't know, I can't remember if it was him who said it or on his show, Dr. Yolanda Seely Ruiz had said, I think that's who it was. She had said, we must be willing to put our jobs on the line. And so this concept of putting our jobs on the line because we're there for the students, right? Like, so sometimes what we do is in our heads, we create this idea of what if these parents, often like these white, rich, cisgendered, like parents, Christian parents, right? These like the 6% of the population or whatever. What if those parents get vocal and don't like what I'm doing and they come into my class? Certainly also, like you're saying, like the laws in different states, like vary, but often when, especially when we're not in classes like that or states like that, we think about these parents in our minds. We don't usually, or I I mean, I'm, I'm speaking for teachers that I've had conversations with here. We don't think about the other parents of students who are not privileged in an advantage in traditional curriculum, whose voices are rarely represented in the lawmaking of the state, in the governance of the school or district, in the teacher identities of teachers who are in the classroom, right? And like, so whose voices are in our heads as we're making these decisions? Often we fear things that aren't necessarily going to even happen. We just, we don't act because of the fear. And then when we do implement, we often see that even the parent who does call us, we can have a conversation and talk about how we are not actually like teaching, you know, we're, we're not saying you need to vote for this person or whatever, we're talking about taking a really critical look at what is happening in the world and being able to ask some really tough questions and to advance justice, right? And so advancing justice is this thing that we can all get behind and enabling that student voice in the projects, in the um, pursuit of research is what ultimately is going to get parents on board because they're like, oh, so my kid can explore the issue that's important to them. So if they're really interested in eating disorders, like go ahead and explore eating disorders. Like we don't want people to feel like not okay in their bodies. We want people to be healthy, right? Like as long as we're advancing justice, we're good. And I think that's the thing for me is that this also requires a a work of that class community back to the very beginning, right? Then the agreement that I set and require for my class is we must ground everything we do in dignity. That's the line. We can't cross the line. We can't violate a person's inherent right to dignity and be to be treated with dignity or a group of people's right to be treated with dignity. We can't violate that. Like that's just a no-go, right? And so when we think about, I think Jonathan Gold said, um, yeah, I have this quote here. So talking about perspectives without talking about power 
So when we, we, this myth of like hearing all sides, right? We hear that sometimes can imply an equivalency of viewpoints that brings with it a very real danger of erasing injustice. So this idea of erasing injustice by not having that critical lens and analyzing the dynamics of power is what we want to avoid when we think about like, all voices are welcome. We don't want that one student to feel like they're fearful of reprisal or punishment if they were to voice an unpopular opinion, but we also can't let them violate a group of uh, people's dignity, right? And so I think that's a really important thing and nuance to be thoughtful about when we're designing these lessons and units. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, we, we have covered so much. I would love our audience and we have a mix. We've got teachers, we've got administrators, we have organization leaders and nonprofits. Where, what is the first step? So we can, we can just talk about, you know, what would be a first step for a teacher what would be a first step for a leader in, in education? And, I, and I, I do want to add that, yes, I see you call it teachership. Teachers are leaders. So when I say that, I mean administrators. So thinking about that, what could be a first step that that our education community can take, depending on the role, for implementing youth action and student voice? Yeah, such a great question. So I think I think a common misconception in this work for leaders is that they think this work is not for them. They think this is only something to coach teachers to do. And so I think an amazing first step for leaders, in addition to you know all of the basic things like giving teachers space and PD and all the things, is for leaders to actually have the conversations with teachers that we want teachers to have with students in the classroom. So for example, if there's a current event that's like a hot topic and we're like, ooh, we're going to avoid that conversation with staff, don't avoid it with staff. Like actually have the conversation, use a protocol that teachers can take and use in the next class. I love Circle because everyone gets a voice. It's a great way to unpack like a video or a news event. Try that. Like try that in the next staff meeting. And then invite teachers to kind of like replicate that or at least engage you in conversation around it. And for teachers, I would say, when you either one start small, implement a protocol. So implement a protocol with student voice, for example, circle around a current event or from the broad view, next time you design a unit, think about that driving question. Think about the question that will frame the relevance for the entire unit and invite possibilities and kind of like freedom dreaming at the end of it. I love that. And and because we're in STEM, there's a lot of overlap when it comes to climate change, climate action, climate justice, and um, environmental racism. So we do a lot of work when it comes to climate work, especially in education. And what I love about uh, understanding climate science is the interdisciplinary actions that are that allow for it to occur in humanities, in STEM, etc. And so. How, where what, where can we start when we're igniting our, our future activists, right? And, and what I mean by that is I don't expect everyone to kind of go outside and chain themselves to trees. There, there has to be a way. I mean, it, it's possible. I don't think that might help. <laughs> but I do think that there has to be a realistic way that our educators can apply this work in the realm of climate science and climate justice. Are you asking like what type of projects might come from that or how to partner with other courses and content areas? I would, I'm thinking more about the assessment, like the youth action piece. So what, what kind of assignments could come out of that? Yeah, such a good question. Oh my gosh, I love this. So a couple project like format 
categories that I have. One is information. So sometimes the project is literally like my, you know, parents' generation doesn't know about climate change or what leads to climate change. And they're doing something that could be harmful and they don't even know it. So then the answer is information. So a project might be something like a documentary, a podcast, a like science fair, you could teach a younger group of students a lesson, which was a very common format that my high school students love. They love going into elementary schools and being like, let's talk about, you know, like climate injustice or something. So that would be a really cool format. Um, another level of that. So like once the information is there, so let's say they already know the people in the community know about this, but we need to change something. We might either pitch an idea. So that might be like a policy idea that goes to the administrators of a school. It might be um, pitching an idea to like the mayor of the town or something. It might be writing a letter to support policy or legislation at the federal government level or the state level. It could be designing a product. So maybe there is a particular product that is absent. I I heard recently about a school, I think it was Sutton High School. It was somewhere in Massachusetts uh, where the students identified that the tampons in the bathroom, the girls' bathroom were like required payment, like they weren't free. And so they were like, this is so messed up. And so all they did was actually just talk to the school about it, worked with the janitor to have like a different dispensing system. And so the product shifted. Now everyone has free access to tampons. So like just things like that can be really helpful when, when you're thinking about like that format and form pitch a change or design a product. Okay, let's let's recap. So inform, pitch a change, and design a product. All right. I think those are great takeaways that our audience can implement immediately. I I loved this conversation, Dr. Lindsay. It has been such a pleasure. I really am inspired by the work that you're doing and and it's very transformational. I do think and I do hope that many curriculum companies are listening in, not with the sense that we want to take their jobs, (laughs) but more so with a, a notion that we need transformational change in the world of curriculum. And if we can get more curriculum developers to start asking the questions about community culture and meaningful student voice versus going straight to standards and assessment, I truly think that many of our students will find their identity and belonging in the learning. Yes, absolutely. And right back at you, your work is so inspirational. This podcast is absolutely amazing. I'm just absolutely honored to be on it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching STEM For Real, where as you can see, we keep it for real for our STEM educators. If you enjoyed it, make sure that you are subscribed for our future content and please leave us a five-star rating and review. I hope you loved hearing about the why. And now let's talk about the how. Let's partner together and do this work. Visit our website at www.stemforreal.org forward slash partnership. That's stem4real.org forward slash partnership. Until then, keep teaching STEM for real.